What's up, Funkers? Can I say that now, right? What's up, Funkers? What the funk? Second episode, second recording of What the Funk, and a special one for sure, especially for me. I have a couple of new friends right here, but one of them looks strangely like an old friend that we had on here. We got Matt Lozer, who came on one of the tribute episodes for his big brother, Tim, um, earlier this summer um, to to help kind of share some of his memories of uh, his incredible older brother and my dear friend, Tim. And Matt has agreed graciously to be one of our rotating guest co-hosts. So uh, some synergy with Tripping Over the Barrel. Uh, and uh, a lot of fun and insight. And of course, just like Tim, uh, Matt is involved in the energy and energy technology industry. So a lot of fun stuff to talk about there. And our guest today is Mr. Bear Givan. Givan? Is that right? Givan. Close enough. Givan. Okay, we'll make the H silent. Um, But we have some interesting personalities on this one. I think both of you guys are involved in whatever you want to call it, ESG, sustainability, emissions capture. I think we're going to dive deep into that. But I guess just to start off with, um, Bear, you're the guest of honor today. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background? We'll, we'll talk about Earthview and how you got there, but I really want to understand like Dallas kid, right? And then how did you get into flying planes? How'd you end up in Colorado? Kind of give us the full dose of the big bear. Yeah. The full pull, as we like to say, in aviation. Um, yes. So, yeah, Jeremy, Matt, thanks a ton for uh, having me on here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about myself. And, you know, I guess we'll get to some some stuff about Earthview. Um, but, yeah, you know, born in Dallas and, you know, always wanted to kind of move to the mountains. So did that in 2011. I actually started off in Colorado living in Telluride working on uh, ski lifts for about two years. Yeah, you did. That was, that was quite fun. Uh, <laughs> decided that being a lifelong ski bum maybe wasn't the optimal career path, at least in my parents' eyes. I don't know. I was, I was <laughs> so I was having a blast, but, you know, decided to head to Boulder um, to get my degree in geology. So did that. Um, spent a lot of time looking at rocks and, you know, of course, geology is a big part of oil and gas because you got to have someone to find the oil. Um, so I had kind of intended on going into, you know, trying to be a geologist, um, for some of these larger oil and gas companies. And I realized, you know, I needed a master's degree or a PhD and I was sick of school and wanted to get out and get out in the world and start doing stuff. Um, so Nick's that plan and you know, kind of how I got through into aviation. It's just really, you know, lifelong passion. I mean, I've got aviation on both my mom and dad's side. I got uncles and cousins that are pilots. Um, and it's really just something that I've been doing since I was a kid. You know, I was kind of a huge nerd and flew RC airplanes and built them. And, you know, so flying has always been a passion. And, uh, you know, I was working one summer in Boulder at the St. Julian Ballet and Cars. I was able to make oh, it that's where I've seen you before. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. That was a while ago. <laughs> um, so, you know, worked one summer there and made enough money to start getting my private pilot and, you know, never looked back. Um, it was just kind of immediate, you know, kind of connection with, hey, I love flying. It's a cool blend of science and technology and really an art form, too. 
um, to do all that. Just really teaches you how to make decisions and think about things in a really quick time manner. You know, right? You got to make decisions pretty quickly, uh, which it kind of helps a lot in business, right? I mean, you got to make decisions. I mean, I feel like half my job is just making decisions all day long. Whether those decisions are right or wrong, it's it's kind of irrelevant. This decision has to be made. Um, and you go with, you know, kind of, you go with the flow there. Um, and if it's the wrong decision, you work your way out, which is similar in, in flying. Um, so that's kind of how I got into flying and, you know, that's somewhat led me to, uh, get into earth view. So Matt, this is when you're supposed to chime in and say that you're an air force brat, right? Well, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to ask what you fly and then, and then, uh, then we're just going to see where that went. <clears throat> Yeah. So, you know, all my, all my time is in, um, you know, I would do some stuff around air force bases and they would always refer to us as light civils, which was kind of masculating, <laughs> but really, you know, really small single prop airplanes are what I've got most of my time in. So a lot of time in Bonanza's and a lot of time in Moonies. Okay. Nice. Go ahead, Matt. I've got nothing. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> So tell they got one propeller. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, and, and your time at Colorado, you got out pretty fast. That looks like it, if your LinkedIn profile is correct, you got out in four years. Is that right? It is. By some miracle, I did manage to get out of there in four years. Um, you know, I did do a little bit of time at community college before transferring to CU. But, yeah, it was about four years. But I got there in 2014 and was done by 2016. 2018 roughly so okay and then uh, why what made you choose Colorado is it just proximity to where you were being a ski bum yeah proximity and um, you know living in Telluride really kind of inspired me to want to study the earth right so I mean I remember doing a drive from Telluride which is this really cool mountain town um, out to Moab Utah which was just a complete change and I was really curious as to like why why is that? Why did that happen? So it kind of drew me to geology and, you know, University of Colorado is one of the best schools in the world for that. And it also just happened to be in the state I was living in and didn't want to leave. So all kind of worked out. So just throw in an application and get accepted. No problem. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, there's a few hoops there. I had to explain my ski bumness, but they seem to view that as a positive as opposed to a negative. So I don't think Colorado has the, uh, the lowest... <laughs> They have a pretty high acceptance rate. Yeah. Well, you know, they probably figured, well, he's already got that out of his system. So unlike everybody else that comes here and desires to be a ski bum and take six years to go to school, maybe he's already moved past that. He's a little bit older. I think we'll be, we'll be good with it. Uh, so to bring it back to me, because this is my podcast, right? So it's, it's always about me now. But um, so when I decided to move to Colorado, you know, I'm a New Hampshire kid. Uh, went to college in Boston. I think at the time I was living just outside of Washington, D.C. I knew I wanted to do something different. Uh, and Colorado was certainly that different. But I moved out here with two other guys. One of them wanted to move to Steamboat Springs and be a lifty. The other one wanted to move to Denver. But I was kind of at the point where I wanted to start my career a little bit. And Boulder was sort of the best option for all of those things. Yeah. Um, I still live in Boulder County. I love Boulder. It's a great town. Bear, I think your office is in Longmont, so you didn't stray too far from out here, and, and you live in Denver. But I want to go back to the flying, right? So you you were you know, very curious about the terrain, obviously. 
Um, you had the geology background. And then not only were you flying planes as a, uh, you know, right out of school and having your pilot license after your time at the St. Julian, but then you actually got into flying planes kind of all over the lower 48. Well, even, I, I guess I would say all over North America and seeking out methane emissions, right? So how did you end up sort of in that space? And that I think will lead us a little bit to what you're doing at Earthview. Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of how I got that, that initial job was just, I was doing my training at the Boulder airport, um, and met the, the kind of the CEO and president of the, the firm I flew for called scientific aviation. And they were based out of Boulder. Um, I got to know him for about a year before I graduated and he offered me a job, um, you know, can basically under the condition that I get my commercial and instrument rating and then finish my degree. So let's just, I think my spring semester, I was in 22 hours of class plus commercial and instrument training. So it was busy uh, last semester there, but it was all worth it, right? Because literally my first job as a commercial pilot was up in Yellowknife, Canada, which is way up there. I mean, when I heard about it, I looked on a map to figure out where it was. Um, it was literally flying uh, research missions for NASA. So I wasn't the actual pilot in command on that particular mission, but I did do a lot of a lot of the flying. Um, we were up there looking uh, for methane emissions as they relate to permafrost melt. So they had us up ripping around the North Slope for six weeks at a time, trying to get us a, an understanding of how much methane um, is being emitted over this huge, massive area and what kind of and how that changes over time. So we started out in April and finished the last one in November. Uh, it was a really, really cool experience. Um, and then from there, yeah, just really got to fly those research planes in Canada. Um, you know, I can't say enough about how awesome that experience was. I mean, flying up in Fort McMurray, which is where Canada has their uh, tar sands up there, which is, I always describe it as based on flying over Mordor. Um, <laughs> out there, <laughs> uh, that's kind of what it felt like. And then just seeing, you know, going down to the lower 48 and seeing, okay, how are landfill emissions? How are these things, rip, you know, creating so much methane feedlots? I mean, really got the whole gauntlet of sources that could produce methane. I've probably flown some, some circles over it, um, including getting into some offshore stuff down at the coast of Mexico, which. In a single engine airplane gets pretty spooky. Um, you know, you really pay attention to the sound of that engine. Let me tell you when you're a couple hundred miles offshore. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, even if you're in the middle of nowhere, like Yellowknife, that seems like a, you got to be aware too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, after I left that job, I did, um, I had another job flying for a, a family out of, out of, based out of Wyoming. And the scariest part was flying out to Phoenix up to Watford City, what felt like twice a week. And I have to fly over the Rockies, which was always at really? least, you know, the water or somewhere to put it down, but <laughs> there's nowhere to go in the mountains. Yeah. yeah scary shit. I get scared <laughs> flying over, flying out of Denver, taking off to the to the West. Freaks me out every time. Yeah. 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 So Matt, what's, what's your connection to uh, flying? Well, I was just going to, yeah. So I was going to ask, um, we're getting into quite a bit of renewable natural gas with bio, um, with uh, dairy farms and collecting methane 
and putting it back into the pipeline. <clears throat> Have you, you had any experience flying over any uh, dairy farms, etc., looking at dairy emissions? Yes, um, I have. I believe we did all that in California. Uh, we looked at pretty much every dairy farm from, what, Humboldt County up in the north down to, you know, I remember doing one off uh, over in the Salton Sea, which was another area I had to look up, figure out where the heck I was going. Um, I don't even know that. Yeah, a lot of experience around agriculture. And I remember those being some of the largest sources I had seen to date. Yeah. You know, interesting thing about the Salton Sea, I just watched a uh, a show and it, they showed some old commercials from the 1950s, uh, I want to say 50s, early 60s, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And they had, it, it was, they were promoting it as just this vacation destination. And they had, uh, you know, bikinis everywhere, skiing, um, you know, all that. And if you go look at it now, there's nothing left. <laughs> but Anyway, sorry to do this. Yeah, it's totally, it's gone and it's all from, uh, you know, farmland, uh, all of the fertilizers going into the Salton Sea. So anyway. Wow, it's fascinating. So, so Bear, so you're flying all over the place, whether it's dairy farms or mountains or oceans or seas that I've never heard of. And you decide that you want to start a company. Right. Did this, did this thought come to you while you were actually flying the plane and you had to catch yourself? Like, I'm guessing, like, I picture the genesis of earth view happening when you're literally on a plane and you're like, I got to land this thing somewhere. I got this business. I got to start. But why don't you give us sort of the um, initial way that you thought of the idea of what earth is doing, putting physical methane emission sniffers on wells and other uh, emitting areas and um, sort of where has it taken you over the past, I think, four years? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the idea for Earthview didn't really happen when I was flying as a research pilot. Um, I certainly was starting to kind of get a sense that there is a very large potential market here and that really there is a real problem, right? I actually, you know, I got a bird's eye view of the problem flying that plane around. Um, And I remember, you know, I remember taking off out of Midland sometime in 2018 or 19. And it was at night, and I remember just, it was, felt like it was like the dawn, which is how much flaring was going on. And to, to me, that was just kind of like, wow, okay, we've got a, there's going to be a substantial problem here. Now, I had no idea how things would kind of progress up to this point. But I just remember thinking in my gut, like, there's, there's something here. Um, and aircraft, at least the way we were flying the research planes, was not really conducive to, uh, well pad by well pad surveys, right? I mean, it just wasn't the best method for the job. So, what was the what was the on the planes themselves? What were you, were you using cameras to capture everything? No, and so then we were all in situ measurements using a Picaro uh, gas okay. analyzer. So you know, about a hundred and fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment in the back of the plane. Yeah. All right. Wow. Um, but that required us, you know, since we're doing in situ measurements, that required us to get to get low, right? I mean, we, you know, I was, you know, for me, it was, you know, 100 feet was kind of like a normal operating altitude. 100 feet. Whoa. Was, yeah, we're really low. So part of your. Well, that is in Midland, though. So that, there's no trees, right? Yeah, no <laughs> tree. I mean, you know, we'd be right above the trees. I'd have some. 
Gosh, Nvidia is probably one of you know. My mind broken some some rules there, but you know, um, got to get low. We did have permission from the FAA to fly down that low, but it was just hairy. You know, I mean, there's just no way to get around it. Flying low is pretty much the opposite of what they teach you from day one of any pilot training. It's like you need to get altitude. Engine yeah. quits. You got options. Um. But yeah, so just kind of seeing the problem. Well, uh, I'm going to bring in the Air Force Brad here. My dad, every every story he tells of investigating a plane crash starts with, they were flying too low. Yeah. Well, that was like They were trying to fly under this bridge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you spend all your time down low, I mean, eventually something's going to happen. It's just a numbers game. So, you know, for me, the flying of the aircraft was just, it wasn't a, it was a, a really kind of a hairy um, flight pattern that I just didn't want to do for much longer. Um, and then, you know, it was hard being on the road as a research pilot. I mean, you're literally, you're gone for six, eight weeks at a time, back for a week, back out on the road. It was just, it was exhausting doing that for three years, but I really felt that there was a problem, right? So how do we address it? And then the whole, you know, I ended up meeting my co-founder, um, who is a CU retired, uh, climate scientist, you know, he's got about 40 years of research experience and his area of focus was up in the Arctic looking at sea ice melt, permafrost melt, uh, methane release related to that, those two items. And he was interested in, you know, how can we build out a sensor network that we can see all these, you know, get a, a more spatially distributed sensor network covering the North Slope. So we can, you can better see in time and space how emissions change through the season, right? That was kind of some of the inspiration. And that was really where our early instruments developed from. So it took us, it took Jim and I about, you know, you figure Earth, you got started officially in like 2020. Uh, it took us about a year to figure out where we thought the best solution would be. And really we keep, we kept coming back to, you know, aircraft, like I'm very experienced with aircraft. I know their limitations and their strengths. Drones, right, are like aircraft, but they're even more restricted. The whole economics of operating a drone doesn't really make sense until you can operate them beyond line of sight. So really it came down to stationary monitoring. And then the whole, we're getting all this data in time, really just resonated with Jim and I. We really felt that that was the way to go. Um, and now it's just a matter of can we make these low-cost sensors deliver data that is, that is actionable um, and not just noise, which we did. So we spent most of 2020 and 2021 getting that nailed down, um, ready for kind of commercial launch here in you know, mid-2021. And so it's that's kind of a little bit of how we got rolling. No, that's that's really good stuff. So one of the questions I had for you, actually, when I came out to your warehouse and we first met, and just full disclosure, Funk Futures is working closely with Earthview, trying to help these guys get sales. I when I started Funk Futures, I started it with the thesis that I wanted to work with companies who had a chance to be disruptive with best of breed technology and affordable cost. And nobody checks those boxes better than Earthview. We're incredibly excited to see the early traction and where this could go over the long term. So I, I love what Earthview is doing. But one of the questions that I asked you when I first came out to Longmont was, how do you know where the emissions are coming from? Like, what's to say a big breeze doesn't blow through? And then you've got this pad over here that's not that far away from this pad over here. Like, how do you attribute where the actual emissions are coming from? Yeah, no, that's a it's a, a great question and something that we deal with frequently. 
Um, so typically, right, when if, if you think about a well pad, you can imagine we have three to four of our sensors on the fence line. So one of those sensors, hopefully, is on what we call the upwind side, which is basically where if you think about the wind blowing across a pad, the upwind side is the opposite side of where the wind is blowing. So emissions would not be hitting that node. So that's kind of check one is to say, what is my upwind sensor doing and how does that compare to what my downwind sensors are doing? And if you're seeing similar readings across all three of these sensors, it pretty quickly says, boom, this is an off-pad emission. Uh, and we had to learn that the hard way, right? I mean, we, and I remember seeing it in the data, we're working with a, a client down there, and I'm, you know, we're getting some alerts and it's clearly off-pad, right? We can see it. Uh, but our software hasn't, is it wasn't sophisticated enough at that time to, to filter that out, which we've now gotten that solved. But yeah, I mean, Jeremy, that, that was something that we had to solve, but it's, it's really just looking at the magnitude of the methane concentration readings you're seeing sensor to sensor. And really what you're looking for is a similar concentration around all three. Um, and that's a pretty quick check to get to figure out if it's on pad or off pad. Now that does assume that the winds are working with you. Um, sure. Which is a limitation, right? But we're also there all the time. So the great thing about winds is they shift around and eventually we'll get the favorable winds. And are you tracking the winds with the uh, with the sensors as well? Yeah. Is that, yeah okay. Each sensor has its own uh, wind ammometer on it. How often do you get requests for H2S um, sensors? And would you use that as a like an, an, an alarm type status or what would you do with, if you had an H2S, um, you yeah. had a sensor out there and it popped up, what would you do with the data? I guess. You know, it's a great question. So we, we get frequent H2S and it's something that's absolutely in our product development line. It's not something we have ready to go um, right now. Now, however, with H2S, right, it's more of a safety factor. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't, you know, how our methane system works right now is we send a email alert that goes to our clients that tells them, hey, we're seeing some activity at this rate, at this, we think this is the source. Um, you know, here you go. With H2S, I'm not, uh, it would probably be, be more based on kind of the uh, health threshold when, you know, people need to be concerned from a health perspective. And then two, just kind of the behavior of the gas is a little different. Uh, H2S sinks, methane rises. So how we would actually, where we would actually sample for that uh, would be something to consider, but definitely something we were interested in doing. Just we, you know, it's the thing with a startup, right? You have a lot of different things you can do, but it's kind of our job to laser focus and make sure that we can get into the market and then expand our product line from there. So methane for us is just such a cool opportunity um, right now, but other centers are definitely on our um on our, on our to-do list, which is long and everybody. And, uh, how about, let me just, for shits and giggles, I was on a call this morning um, in UK, and we've got some pipeline ideas for hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And uh, my immediate thought was, well, shit, if there's a leak with hydrogen, you want to know it. Um, yeah. is, that, is that an option too, I presume? Yeah, so, I mean, really, at Earth, you are kind of thesis- what we do is we take low cost sensors, apply sophisticated software on top of them to deliver near reference grade results. That's kind of our mantra with methane. Um, hydrogen is something 
Absolutely, it's on our on our list. And I mean, hydrogen is still a pretty potent greenhouse gas, all things considered. You definitely don't want to have it leaking if you can help it. Um, right. So yes, short answer is it's on our on our to do list. Very cool. I'm sorry, we went almost 25 minutes into this, and I gotta say, Matt, happy birthday! It's your oh. birthday. Today. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey, yeah, that's why I'm enjoying a nice little cocktail. There you go. Oh, right. yeah, we, we usually recommend that, but I don't know. I gave up drinking a few months ago, so I'm not doing that. But um, I was going to say, um, Huberman Labs, is, it's, it's unbelievable <laughs> how much ep- that episode has come up in my conversations in the last few months. And so, so I started doing uh, Monday through Thursday. I don't do any drinking. And then the weekends, I, I let it happen. But it's my birthday, so. So, so it's five minutes Tuesday. Plus, there was a soccer game, and it was on kind of a okay. night for you. USA took it down. That was that was a good game. I got to watch that. Um, yeah. But no, Matt, happy birthday, and, and definitely thank you for uh, coming on to do this, Bear. So, I want to talk a little bit about the competitive differentiation. So, you mentioned low cost hardware, very sophisticated software and technology behind that. We're seeing companies pop up, right? No, no one more prevalent than Project Canary. They've raised a ton of money. They're a really big company here in Denver. Like, what would you say is your competitive differentiation from the Project Canaries? And certainly there's others that play in the space, but why would somebody do business with Earthview? What is your secret sauce and how do you guys win? Yeah, it's a you know great question, and you know just kind of thinking about Project Canary, you know they they've done a great job of building a lot of awareness in this space, um, and really you know with Project Canary we we almost view them more as an ally going forward, right? I mean it's you know we're Earthview, we are in the in the in the business of building the best lowest cost continuous emissions monitoring platform that we can. Uh, Project Canary has really pushed. What do you do with that data, right? When you do continuously monitor your wells, there's, hey, okay, we, we catch these leaks, right? But there's a whole other, you know, you get into certified gas with either Project Canary or MIQ, right? And continuous monitoring plays a yep. huge part in that. Um, so Project Canary, right, they've got some really cool sensors. Um, you know, we're definitely right on par with them, but we're just in, a, in a, such a lower cost point that you really can scale this out to all of your locations because just in my experience, any location can leak at any given time. So you really need monitoring everywhere. But to do that, you can't, you know, you can't be paying thousands of dollars a month to exactly. do that, especially on lower production facilities, right? I mean, it's kind of a cost game. So, you know, that's one of our advantages. I don't really like to hit on cost as like one of our main advantages, but it certainly is, right? And that goes into just how we built our hardware, how we've designed everything, uh, which all leads into the you know, that we essentially, we don't charge our clients for hardware. Um, and then, you know, we do some really cool stuff in the actual sensor data. So any, you know, kind of company in our, in our cost point, at our cost bracket, right, they're likely going to be using metal oxide sensors. Metal oxide sensors are notoriously difficult uh, to make work in, you know, an environment where you have a high relative humidity and when you see that humidity changing a lot, um, you can get false positives, which are about a quick way to lose the faith of the field guys is to have multiple false positives. So 
we spent the bulk of our development period working on that method to correct for temperature and humidity. And I kind of joke, I don't have a picture of our platform up, but keeping the line flat when there's no gas, that's a lot of work going into that. Um, so that's one huge competitive advantage I think we have. It's just we really nailed how to get these low-cost sensors to really deliver near-reference-grade um, data, right? So on a methane concentration level, we're seeing a, a sensitivity of about 0.3 ppm, uh, which competing offers are in, you know, you're seeing sensor resolution of maybe 5 ppm. So we're, we're really squeezing the most out. Um, and then two, the other thing we're able to do, which has been adding significant value is we can kind of talk to the nature of the gas stream that we're seeing. So a tank emission, for instance, is going to have a much heavier VOC to methane ratio than say a wellhead release or a separate sure. release. So kind of looking at that helps us be able to better fingerprint where the leak is coming from, which is always a challenge for point centers, right? We're on an imaging system. So we kind of, we have to look at multiple different factors to, to triangulate where that leak is coming from and gas, um, you know, gas stream, I'm using the wrong word here, but the, the wet gas versus dry gas does kind of help that. So just kind of some of our advantages there. Um, the system, right, it's portable. You don't have to T-post it in. Um, it's really sit and forget. And then another thing too we do is, you know, we sample up at 12, 15, 17 feet in the air, right? I mean, mm. it is funny. I go out to pads where we've got some competitors out there and I just can't help but notice that their boxes seem to get a little higher. Every time I go <laughs> That's just, it's really simply because methane rises, right? So if you're down at four feet and you're trying to measure emissions from the top of a 20 foot tank, you're probably going to miss some of them. Um, so that's why we have a big mass that goes up to measure that. So really those are kind of some of the advantages that I see EarthView has over similar offerings. And there really, there just aren't that many of us out there. Right yeah. I, I would guess that if we were to have this conversation in a year, you'll see more and more companies come from outside of industry but I think it's very important that you do have experience and that your team has experience in the space uh, because you you sort of know the language and even just the acronyms that you've already used, right? You don't have to come in and try to learn those and fake it till you make it. This is a very right. familial, close-knit industry and people will discover the outsiders very quickly. So the early mover advantage that you guys have is a real thing. Um, well, Jeremy, too, on that note, I just want to make one other point just about my personal beliefs and the time to earth you, too, right? I mean, it's really hard to point fingers at the oil and gas industry and say, you have polluted over X years. It's like, but we all yeah. use the products. So collectively, right. whatever the oil and gas industry has done, it's because us, the consumer, have demanded that product. Now, I love working with the industry because I know that there's a lot of motivation um, to think, to understand the emissions it produce, but ultimately, right. I mean, I like to turn my lights on and I like to turn my heat on. I mean, it's 22 degrees here in Colorado right now. If we didn't have natural gas. It would be a lot colder in my house right now. So yeah. trying to come up with a solution that doesn't just, you know, that allows us to continue utilizing fossil fuels for the next 50 to hundred years. I mean, there's really nowhere to transition to right now. I mean, there's a lot of ideas of where we can go, but there's no real, concrete baseload um, energy source other than oil and gas, particularly natural gas. So ha getting a handle on those methane emissions is a, a huge part of the energy transition. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. 
Amen. So Matt, so Matt, speaking of some of those potential other forms of energy, that's kind of where you play, right? Yeah. Like what, what, what is your, what do you, what, what would you say you do here? You're over in London right now. You're working on what well, hydrogen pipelines. What, what do you well, got going on? It's kind of, I got a lot of stuff going on, but the, um, <clears throat> primarily, uh, you know, I started as a civil engineer coming out of college and we were doing Lowe's and Walmart developments all over the place. Tim used to say I designed parking lots and he was pretty <laughs> accurate for that. Um, but then, uh, in 08, I, it, uh, just took the huge downturn. So I got into the natural gas fueling market and I worked for clean energy fuels for two years and two, two different stints. Um, and we designed and built probably five to 600 natural gas fueling stations across the country. And that's gradually bridged into what we're doing now, which is, is moving over into the hydrogen market and, uh, just hydrogen, just because of, uh, the NRA, um, it's, uh, it's just, it's become viable in the U S so it's, it's happening. It's just going to take a lot of time, but it's one of those things that's probably, you know, it's the early adoption phase where people are going to make a bunch of mistakes and go the wrong way. And then 10 years from now, we're going to laugh at them and say, you should have, you should have invested in, in B instead of A. Um, but it's, it's definitely a growing market. And, and a lot of what's happened, the reason we're over here is there is a untapped uh, resource pool in Europe and the UK that's, that's already started on the hydrogen front and they've, they were the early adopters and now they're pulling back and they lost, you know, they don't have as much funding and, and everything else. So they're going to invest in the U S. So some of that, some of that uh, design team, some of that uh, labor pool is available at a, at a much lower cost. So trying to take advantage of that. So they've got a company over here and, uh, and one in the U S as well. Interesting. So do you think we're going to start seeing more of these hydrogen pipelines drilling for hydrogen start to come here to the U.S.? Because it generally seems like, at least from my perspective, Europe right now is trying to be further further down the path. They are. And they, and they are. I think they're further ahead, and they, but they've also gone down the road of it's just all public money and they're playing with it and they're, you know, there's no... Uh, repercussions for making the wrong decision. Whereas in the U S it will quickly be a capitalist game. Um, but we're going to go through that same phase of, of, of overspending, et cetera. But the, um, I think you're going to see a lot more renewable natural gas to hydrogen. And I think you're going to see a lot more, um, solar with, uh, renewable methane reforming, in the yeah. U.S., in the desert of the U.S. is where I'd say it's going to come first. And then I I would envision a lot more liquid storage of uh, liquid distribution of hydrogen in the U.S. and probably ammonia on the uh, on the uh, sea, the marine application, if you will. 
So you mentioned the NRA. This is not a podcast about guns. I think what you were referring to is the IRA. NRA, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. That's, that's okay. That's okay. If I didn't have to correct a loser on a podcast, it wouldn't be a podcast for me. But the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm not going to sit here and pontificate that I know exactly what it is. In fact, sometime in December, I'm having two guys who work very closely in sort of the energy transition, energy technology space to come on and break it down for novices like me and explain what the Inflation Reduction Act is. But effectively, and Bear, maybe you know a little bit more about this and have studied SB 1137 and the Inflation Reduction Act more than me, but effectively what's happened is starting really in 2023, there's going to be a significant fee structure placed on any company, not just oil and gas companies, but any company that, that emits methane at a significant rate. And there's going to be thresholds and effectively very large fines for companies, like to the, to the order of, and I think Barry, you, you're more aware of this, for some companies, like hundreds of millions of dollars. Do, do you want to give a little bit of insight into what you've learned uh, about the IRA? to this point and how it's going to affect, at least in this case, operators, landfills, midstream companies? I, th- I think I just have a hard time saying IRA without thinking Irish Republican Army. And, and <laughs> you've got to be careful because you're in England, so I get it. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, yeah, so I, I guess, you know, Jeremy, I, w- I wonder if you could find any actual senators or people who passed the IRA that actually know it that well either. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly implications um, for methane emissions built into the IRA. So, you know, kind of what we see at Earthview, right, is there's now teeth embedded in this bill. Now, I haven't read it. I couldn't talk, you know, for 30 minutes about it. But how it affects Earthview is that, you know, oil and gas companies are more motivated to find leaks because it costs them, not only does it cost them uh, production value, right? I mean, if you know, it's lost production. Um, but there's also now you're looking at significant fines and being able to demonstrate that you're catching these leaks quicker, utilizing technology like what Earth is deploying to the market right now is, is going to be a way to significantly cut down those um, on those fees. So there's definite teeth in there for methane emissions. Uh, particularly going after, you know, like you said, big emitting industries like your agriculture, energy, um, waste is another big one. Um, so, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to fully shake out, but I know that it's, it definitely has uh, strong implications for both Earthview and for our, um, our, our oil and gas customers. Yeah. It, it are you getting does any, sorry, are you getting any regulatory... Um, like I asked you earlier about the AQMD and, and Bay Area AQMD or, or any of those regulatory agencies coming to you or they are you seeing any push for them to monitor this stuff and, and be the ones issuing the fines or is it how is it, how are you seeing that kind of playing out yeah no Matt it's a, it's a, it's a good question it's something that kind of in a, where earth you stand, right, is we, um, it's kind of a fine line, right? Because we need to be a third party kind of, you know, on our own, right? So I, I don't like the idea of, of governments, right, utilizing our product to find our customers. So 
to me, I like to, like we just deployed our first units out in California. Um, I would prefer to have our customers being oil and gas operators adopt our technology, understand it, then start bringing in some of the regulatories and showing and going to them with data that says, look, here's two months of data. We caught nine leaks that wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have even caught these leaks if we were doing it the, tr- the tr- traditional way. It's just right. a guy in a truck going out with a camera and looking for leaks. I mean, so that's kind of my thought on it, right? I mean, I, I would, I think there is potential. So a proactive uh, self-regulation would probably be a better approach. I, w- I mean, I would agree with that. Definitely. I mean, I just, I see it so clearly in talking to our customers here in Colorado. Um, they're beat down by the regulations. And to be honest, right. I, I t- the regulations help me and they help Earthy, but I feel their pain because I get beat down, beat, get beat down by it too because they're so limited in what they can do. They, they, we don't have any of our methane stuff deployed here in Colorado because companies are like, well, it doesn't check our box. You know, we don't, we already have to do all these OGI inspections. Whereas in Texas, they're like, heck yeah, let's do it. Like, this is awesome. So it's kind of an example where over-regulation mm. actually ends up hurting. Um, it, it actually ends up doing the opposite of what the regulators intended to do, which is just irony. Right. And in turn, being less sustainable and hurting the environment. Right? Exactly. I mean, in theory. So so a couple just broad questions and then I'm going to shift here. So like, Bear, what what kinds of things create the most methane emissions? Is it the oil wells? Is it natural gas wells? Is it dairy farms? Is it, uh, y- you know, is it uh, the dump? Like what, what is it that creates like the most emissions, would you say? And like, how does it sort of tear down? You know, um, it's a great question. And I'll just speak to kind of my experiences. Um, you know, I think the biggest emitters I saw were large landfills kind of in the LA area. Those are always pretty heavy hitters. Um, oil and gas has huge potential, right? Every site has potential to be a huge emitter. So just because I think the sheer volume of assets that we have in the industry leads it to, there's a lot of potential there. Now with not every one of those sites is leaking, um, but with like a landfill or with like a feedlot, right? There's not really much you can do and they're constantly pouring methane out. Um, so in my mind, it goes, you know, Waste, agriculture, oil and gas, um, I would say would be kind of how I would tier it. Um, but, you know, oil and gas, right, we're losing estimates from various studies. You know, don't let me cite the white paper, but I'm sure I could. But it's something like 9% of our total production is being vented. So I, that's just like, it's like, you know, like billions of dollars in lost product um, just going to the atmosphere. And with oil and gas, right, it's such, why it's such an intriguing place for Earth to exist is because Typically, the facilities aren't designed to leak. You know, I mean, your tanks are, right? But typically, there's something you can do to reduce the emissions. And it's a, it might be as simple as closing a thief hatch or adjusting a, a generator. I mean, there's a lot you can do, whereas oil and, or whereas agriculture and uh, waste, the solution is less clear, um, which is why oil and gas to be represents such a great beachhead for Earth to infiltrate the market. That's, that's really well answered. And, and I think you've told me this before, but generally you see more emissions at oil sites versus natural gas sites. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's just because of the nature of an oil site. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a dirtier product than natural gas. I mean, natural gas, you can keep it almost all in the pipe all the way to the sales line. 
Um, with oil, you you introduce the you know the the oil haulers unloading and loading and you know oil is just it just you got these liquid tanks sitting there. So just by nature, it's just a much uh, I wouldn't say it's much dirtier, but it's it's clearly there's more emissions we see um, like in the Permian as opposed to the Marcellus. It's it's a pretty clear difference. Yeah, interesting. Because I, I would have thought differently. Attribute that to the moisture, or is that the uh, just the content of the oil? I, it's just you know from our experience, it's just having those tanks. I mean, you know, typically eighty percent of emissions are coming from tanks if they're there. Uh, we see a lot from oil tanks. Um, it's just the liquids, I would say. You know, uh, Gazprom just predicted uh, three thousand dollars an MCM of gas in uh, February. Which I don't know what that converts to in MCF, but it sounds like a pretty impressive number. So sounds if we like can capture all that gas and sell it, if we could become an exporter again and be a gold mine. And yeah, I mean, part of that is right, you got to find the leaks. Yeah. MCM, Man Crush Mondays. You know, you two should just hang out sometimes and just make up your own acronyms. I think you'd have a really good time doing that. That's what I do half the time. <laughs> Probably. Make it up. <laughs> well, I, but, uh, I, I had to Google the, uh, you know, MCM because I was confused because I was thinking in MCFs. I said, well, 3,000 in MCF would be outrageous. That would, yeah, yeah, that would be, we'd be in a world of hurt if it was 3,000. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 3,000 per NCF. Woo. So I got to do this bear. I know you get this a lot, but I got to get to the elephant in the room or in this case, the bear in the room. Your name's bear. What's, what's that about? It is. Um, yeah. So that was the name they gave me when I popped out of the womb. Um, but it's, you know, bear is my middle name and Frederick's my first name. So bear is a family name. Um, it's my grandma's maiden name. So I'm Frederick Bergevin Jr. So not the coolest origin story, but you know, it's a family. <laughs> weren't born with claws or anything like that. Um, no. That's that. Uh, no, that's great. Nice way to honor, you know, the family lineage as well. And just something kind of cool and different. Um, and obviously I'm not one to talk. My last name's Funk and Matt's last name is Lozer. So, I mean, what are we, what are we, what are we doing here? Right. What are we doing? Yeah. What's in a name anyway? It's just a name. Uh, well, before we end things, Matt, are there any other questions you want to ask Bear while we have him? Uh, no, I think we got to everything I had, but what, well, no, that was it. (laughs) (laughs) That was classic. Uh, well, er everybody, uh, thank you for listening today. I learned something. I I, I have to do it. I've got to do it. I can't can't resist. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right, Bear. This is a trivia question. Awesome. Best movie about golf ever made. I mean, I got to go with Caddyshack. All right. Worst movie about golf ever made. Uh, What's the one with, uh, what's the guy, Shia LaBeouf, whatever one he was in. I don't remember the name. was how bad it was. No, no, no. It's Caddyshack 2 is the worst one. (laughs) I didn't even know they made Caddyshack 2. Yeah, well, don't watch it. Trust it. Have, trust me. Murray. No, it was uh, they couldn't even get. Uh, who did the first one? Uh, what was his name? Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, Rodney Dangerfield wouldn't even come back for it. It was that bad. 
So he had his 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 second cousin or something. They they brought him in, and it was just a bad 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 all around. <laughs> you know that reminds me. That That's one of Tim's Tim's favorite questions. <laughs> yeah, totally. It reminds me of that you know Jaws Revenge or whatever the actor. Someone yeah. asked the actor, they were like, "Did you ever watch the movie?" He goes, "No, I heard it was terrible, but it sure bought me a nice house or something." So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this is this is funny. So you know. I'm a New Hampshire kid, so I'm going to go with Happy Gilmore, Adam Sandler, Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm going with that. That movie made me laugh even more than Caddyshack. But I'll never forget going to the Quick Check in Plymouth, New Hampshire. And it was like, this is renting VHS. I'm aging myself. My birthday is on Thursday of this week. And Caddyshack was never available. But Caddyshack 2 was always there. So I guess there's a reason as to why. But anyways, we'll wrap it up here. Um, Bear, thank you for, for coming on, giving us your time. Matt, thank you for jumping on at night, especially on your birthday over in London. And uh, you'll be back on this. We'll do it a few more times. And Bear, yeah. I think you may have your own content creation coming out at some point too that we've uh, discussed. So it was truly a pleasure having you guys and uh, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeremy and Matt. Appreciate the opportunity to babble on some more about Earthview. <laughs>